Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, politics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Today, we're going to talk about a topic near and dear to economists that's also central to investing and a source of problems in making public policy, the intersection of risk and reward, and particularly how these issues affect compensation. We touched on this a bit on our very first podcast about capitalism, but here we're going to explore risk in a few different ways. Yeah, and as we've discussed in some earlier podcasts, humans are generally pretty bad at measuring risks or even understanding what that means, let alone balancing it against rewards. Okay, Mark, let's start, as we often do, by defining our terms a bit more specifically. You know, Seth, a lot of people think of risk as shorthand for something bad might happen. It's often thought of as the chance that something will go bad. In fact, that's how both the dictionary and Wikipedia define it. Yeah, it's funny because but the word risk is actually fairly neutral, at least in economics and finance. All it really refers to is how likely an outcome different from the expected outcome might occur. That uh, volatility, to borrow a term from my statistics friends, that risk, it could be either a positive difference or a negative difference. And as we'll see, having a one-sided view of risk, sort of always focusing on the negative, sets the stage for making some ill-informed community decisions. Think of the return on an investment. We could plot the likely outcomes with the average in the middle, but with a bell curve that straddles that. The wider the bell curve, the more volatile or more risky the outcome is. The tighter the bell curve, the more certain or less risky the outcome is. Yeah, so risk is really just the inverse of certainty. It's not the likelihood of something bad happening per se. That's right. There are different elements to risk. As I just discussed, one could be the actual return one will get on an investment or something similar, but it could also be when one will get it, you know, the notion of time. It could also be the notion of liquidity and how liquid your return is. For example, there's a certificate deposit that may have a very certain interest you earn, but you have to wait to get it. You can't access it right away. One of the things I think is interesting about discussing risk and return, both in financial senses and, and more broadly, is that most people don't realize, if you're not a Wall Street type, they don't realize that risk can actually be bought and sold. That's true. And we do it on a daily basis just as consumers. So when we buy an insurance policy, for example, we're actually selling risk to the insurer and we have to pay them to assume that risk. And there are also those things called call and put options, you know, call options being important to a lot of employees in Silicon Valley. Those are the right to purchase or sell stock at a given price in the future without having to actually invest in the stock itself first. Not having to do that removes a lot of risk from the equation. And there are lots of other complicated financial instruments. I mean, people may have read about these things called like credit default swaps, and there's a ton others where investors can just carve out different types of risks to buy and sell. Yeah. In my experience, there ain't no limit to the inventiveness of Wall Street in coming up with financial instruments that move risk around. <laughs> OK, now let's define the word reward. In this context, we're only referring to financial reward, not overall happiness and other lifestyle rewards, as those are definitely harder to measure, even if they may be more important. But that brings us to another concept that you touched on briefly a few seconds ago, Seth, the importance of when you get a reward, as distinct from the reward itself. Financial types call this the time value of money. And in a strictly financial sense, that's because money that we get or have today is always worth more than money we're going to get in the future for several reasons. Inflation usually makes your money worth less in the future. Uh, you could always invest money now and, and have more later from interest or, or gains or what have you. And you're always taking a greater risk. In fact, multiple kinds of risks. The longer you tie your up money up in something and have to wait for it to come back, even with a reward. 
That's right. So that leads us to how financial valuations deal with time. So there's something called a discount rate. It's a percentage that you discount money received in the future years to calculate its present value. And we're not going to go into financial theory about how you get this discount rate, but it does relate to the risk of any future reward happening. Uh, basically, the higher the risk, the more we have to discount that amount in the future to calculate its value now. Generally in finance, we think of almost everything as a trade-off between risk and reward. If we assume a higher risk of getting a reward, we're going to require a bigger payout to take it on. Conversely, if we want a lower risk of being rewarded, we're going to have to be willing to accept a smaller payout. And Mark, I'm sure you're familiar with the old finance maxim that says you either eat well or sleep well, right? It really means that you accept risk and on average, you will get a better reward. Hence, you're eating well or you tolerate less risk and you know with more certainty what your reward will be, even if it's less. So you sleep well. <laughs> that little mantra was something that I was first taught by, of all things, my cost accounting professor in graduate school when I was getting my MBA. Probably one of the most valuable lessons I learned from the entire class. Yeah, there's a risk-reward continuum among different types of investments. You know, when you think about everything from bank accounts being on the low-risk end through bonds, stocks, real estate, works of art, uh, all those things are increasingly higher risk and hopefully carry higher rewards with them. And that's also true on the other side of the ledger, when you borrow money. For example, you pay more when you accept less risk. That's why a 15-year mortgage has a lower interest rate than a 30-year mortgage, because in the latter, the bank is actually taking a greater risk that you may default or that interest rates will go up and they'll be stuck with a low-yielding investment over that period of time. All of this makes assessing risk so we can evaluate potential rewards really important. But as we've also said many times before, humans just aren't very good at risk assessment. We tend to overestimate the impact of big concentrated events, particularly if they can or do affect us personally in a negative way. Yeah, one example of that is to note that more people have died from things like mining, transporting and burning coal, for example, than have died from all the peacetime accidents involving nuclear energy. But we remember and we think about and include in our own personal risk assessments incidents that happened at Three Mile Island and Fukushima and Chernobyl. And those are big things that affect our psyche. On the other hand, we also tend to underestimate potentially bad things if they're not right in front of us or if we think we're on a roll somehow. We tend to just project whatever a current trend is, good or bad, into the future, whether that's prices going up or stock markets going up or going down or whatever. You know, a huge example of that that we're going to have to deal with is climate change. And the same phenomenon could also lead to things like speculative bubbles. People may have heard of terms like greater fool theory, right, it's, which is the idea that one can sometimes make money even though you purchase an overvalued assets. If those assets could later be sold to someone else at even higher price, effectively selling it to a quote unquote greater fool. Right. It's related <laughs> to this also notion, psychological notion of herd mentality. Right. Which is the idea that we could make money on something that, you know, may be mispriced or just not related to the fundamental price, you know, fundamental value underneath. As long as there's someone behind us willing to make the same mistake. Yeah, which was aptly demonstrated, oddly enough, by, and of all things, by investing in tulips. The Dutch tulips bubble was a famous 17th century speculative craze. Yeah, they say that was actually the first uh, documented famous uh, financial speculative bubble, which is really interesting because I looked it up and apparently in February of 1637, a single tulip bulb sold for more than 10 times the annual income of a skilled artisan. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> Let's not look down too much on our uh, Dutch ancestors because uh, we have our own dot-com bubble, a crazy run-up of technology stock prices that took place in the late 1990s, kind of like a latter-day gold rush. 
And for that matter, the Great Recession of 2008, which was terribly devastating, resulted in part from a speculative bubble in housing prices. Both buyers and bankers kept thinking the value of homes would just keep going up forever. I mean, we saw that same phenomenon even a lot more recently with these sort of meme stock bubbles like GameStop and AMC theaters. In all these cases, from tulip bulbs through tech stocks and home prices and meme bubbles, they're all cases where the desire of individuals to make a quick buck overwhelmed normal human risk aversion. Or to quote a famous Federal Reserve chairman a little bit out of context, we all tend to be irrationally exuberant at times. (laughs) That's right. You know, and also we discussed this in our first podcast briefly, but we suffer from the consequences of something called moral hazard. The idea that we don't guard against risk because we think we're insured. So we're essentially pawning off a disproportionate amount of risk onto others, which could be insurance company or it could be the government and taxpayers. When I worked at Atlantic Richfield Arco many years ago, uh, their value was essentially derived from their share of ownership of the oil from the North Slope of Alaska, which had to get transported through this giant pipeline, uh, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, in order for them to sell it and make money. I was shocked to learn when I worked in their Treasury Department that the company carried basically no insurance on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. I thought that was nuts. I talked to the insurance guys and they said, well, we evaluated that, but we really figured that if anything happened to that pipeline, the federal government was going to show up right away and help us fix it. So we didn't need to insure it. That's right. Lastly, we evaluate risks fairly poorly because, and we've also discussed this briefly in earlier podcasts, that people tend to look at the risk of future happenings and compare them to the present situation, right? Instead of properly comparing the risk of future scenario one versus the risk of future scenario two. I think we saw that in San Carlos back in 2015 when there was that Measure V ballot measure before voters to Uh, fund a bond measure so that we could buy some private property that had never been developed and turn it into a public park. Many people voted against it because they didn't want to pay higher taxes because they assumed that because the land had never been developed, that it never would be developed. In reality, as soon as the person who had owned it for decades sold it, the new owner said, hey, guess what? We're going to develop this land. In general, this kind of thing tends to be a trap, I find, for conservatives who almost always use the status quo as the starting point in their evaluations of risks and return. So now let's talk about how we respond to the fact that we humans are fairly bad risk assessors, right? Because many of the regulations that we live with, which many investors, bankers, etc., complain about, right, are really just responses to the societal harms caused by mispricing risk or by phenomenon such as moral hazard. Like the uh, FDIC deposit insurance that we all know exists for our bank deposits, that seeks to limit the societal harm that's caused from money not being absolutely safe when held in a bank because banks can go bankrupt or run out of reserves. Even the fear, whether it's rational or not, of a bank going under can trigger everyone to withdraw their money from banks, leading to the fear becoming real, even if it didn't have to manifest itself. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, essentially. You know, another example is we require firms that want to use community markets, things like public stock exchanges, commodity exchanges, futures exchanges. We require them to be more transparent about their financial results and to audit the data that they share with their investors so that those investors have better information on which to base risk assessments. But even with that information, risk can still be mispriced because, one, it's hard to calculate (laughs) to begin with. And also there's some friction in information exchange. Not everyone really knows what's going on, even with uh, those regulations. 
That reminds me that those uh, sort of additional details are so important. I used to tell people, don't bother reading financial statements starting with the balance sheet and income statement. Always go directly to the footnotes because that's where all the important stuff is. Speaking of laws, we have to remember that since those are created through a political process, politicians and their supporters have an incentive to mislead the community about the need for societal responses to risk. And that can manifest itself in those politicians either downplaying or exaggerating risk. I think a great example of that, even though I am very much a supporter of better gun control regulation, each side accuses the other in the gun control debate of downplaying or exaggerating the risk of gun ownership. Yeah, Mark, our listeners certainly know that I'm with you on uh, gun control, as we've discussed in uh, previous podcasts. But that situation did come up on our school board uh, many years ago. It was after one of the horrific school shootings that you know happened, uh, unfortunately, all too often. And we had some staff members present to us a plan to like, what do we do if we have an active shooter come into a school board meeting? And although we certainly appreciated the efforts on behalf of those staff members, what we should have done is actually spent a lot more time and effort and focus on more likely threats. For example, we have mountain lions in the area. It was much more likely that a mountain lion would come onto one of our campuses, you know, than an active shooter coming to a school board meeting. Let's shift to talk about something a little more concrete and specifically talk about how all of this plays out in an area that affects all of us, but it's also one which people don't often tend to view through the lens of risk and reward. That's how we all get paid for the work we do. So let's talk about compensation. Every employer uses some subset of a number of different forms of compensation. Of course, this is an exhaustive list and people probably know most of this, but we have things like salary, of course. We have things like variable compensation that includes things like bonuses and commissions. We have things like retirement plans, pension plans. We have in some companies, we have things like stock options, which tend to be relevant for just private sector companies. It's more common in certain industries, particularly around here, such as technology, you know, companies that you know, are already publicly trading or have some sort of liquidity event that they hope to have, like going public or being acquired. And any compensation package involves balancing risk and reward, often in multiple ways. For example, salespeople are paid in part by commission, which in turn requires that they be paid more if they succeed in generating sales. The company is happy to do that because paying by commission transfers some of the risk of generating revenue from the company to the sales staff. That's why in many companies, the top salespeople may actually make more than the top executives. Yeah, and that's also why, in general, smaller companies with fewer resources tend to focus on less certain compensation, i.e. salaries, but focus on variable components like bonuses and commissions and stock options. So in this case, they are having the employee bear more of the risk. And given that, we have to look about how this affects individuals deciding whether or not to sign up with one organization or another. But this is also why the people who get really rich, however they do that, are generally the ones who are willing and able to take on more risk. They make their money by taking on risk through various forms, like compensation that includes a higher component of stock ownership or uh, variable compensation. It's funny because I've worked for a number of companies, including, you know, a few startups in Silicon Valley. And people have asked me, is there a common attribute of the people who strike it really rich? And to be clear, I'm not one of them, <laughs> but the people I've worked with or have known um, who have and putting some thought into it, I really think the number one reason is exactly that, their willingness to take risks. We just don't hear about the people who, of course, wound up on the other end of the bell curve, right, who didn't make money. But those who did make a lot of money often were the ones willing to take risks. Honestly, I would say the number two reason is, frankly, luck. 
And as we mentioned, you know, you hear about Mark Zuckerberg, you just don't hear about the thousands of people who tried to be Mark Zuckerberg and didn't fail. Many of those probably also did the right things to build a business. You know, what's interesting, Seth, is that little analysis that you just walked us through didn't touch on two of the commonly quoted reasons or bases for getting wealthy, and that is being smart and working hard. So what about those? Well, I'm, I'm fans of both of those, to be clear, and they're really important. I do think being smart and working hard amplifies everything you do and makes everything you do more likely to be successful. So I think of them as more foundational than causal when it comes to financial success, for sure. I see. So they kind of enable and multiply, if you will. It's like a multiplier effect if you're able to take risks in the first place. I think that's right. But we have to remember, not everyone can take risks like that. It's not a coincidence that the people who strike it really big, not just Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, but even famous actors or musicians, they often originate from one end or the other of the socioeconomic spectrum. On one end, if you start with nothing, you don't really have much to lose. Madonna's an example of that. If you look at the other end, if you have enough of a financial cushion so failure isn't going to wipe you out, then you can afford to take risks to make more money, even if you have to take risks multiple times. That's right. It brings up this other concept of what we call opportunity cost. What is your opportunity cost to take such a risk? Effectively, that's the loss of value of benefit that would be incurred by engaging in this risky activity compared to the value and benefit from engaging in some alternative. Effectively, the cost of missing out. All of this works differently in the public sector than the private sector because in the public sector, we value predictability and stability over whatever additional rewards might be on offer from the public agency taking on more risk. And that's by design, right? Like, for example, we want to make sure our fire department is available when we need it, even if we have to pay them to be idle sometimes. That's true. That reminds me of uh, one of the very first conversations I had with our local fire chief when I got elected to the city council. I had had some neighbors or some residents complain about all the fire trucks that showed up for a small fire at a house. And uh, he looked at me and I could tell in his eyes was like, oh, no, not this question again. But he looked at me and said, you know, Mark, when the report of the fire comes in, we have no idea how big it is, what the nature of it is, what it might burn next or whatever. So we have to over-resource our response because the downside risk of not sending enough equipment is sky high. That's right. I think in general, because of this, public agencies and their employees are forced by their community into a different risk-reward trade-off, effectively stability over volatility, which means overall lower compensation on average, right? So a public agency gives salary, of course, but they're effectively limited in bonuses and commissions because much of their work is not really measurable by things like sales. They certainly have no stock to give. And because of the lack of this upside involved in risk, what many public agencies do is include things like pensions as part of a compensation package and a statement of that stability. Speaking of pensions, we ought to be clear about what those actually are. A pension is nothing more than a way to pay employees without having to use cash today. Instead, you promise to give them money after they retire when they're no longer working for you, subject to qualification rules, you know, how long they've worked for you, how much they've made, etc. But because the compensation takes place over a long period of time, well off in the future when the person's retired, typically decades, the human difficulty in assessing risk accurately rears its ugly head. And that's important because there really are two general types of pensions. 
Um, and let's go over those for a second, because there's these things called defined contribution plans. These things that a lot of our listeners may be familiar with, where these are ones they may have at work. These include plans like 401ks, but also IRAs and Roth IRAs, etc. This is where the employee, with potentially contributions from the employer as well, contributes to a fund. And that fund is invested in securities. It's often mutual funds, right, for some period of time. Now, that is contrasted with what we call a defined benefit plan. These are what we refer to as the more traditional pensions, although they're definitely less common than they once were, where contributed money is invested, but the employees guaranteed an income stream after a certain period of time or when they hit a certain age. And the main difference between those two classes of plans is who takes on the risk, again, both in terms of positive and negative outcomes. In a defined contribution plan, the employee takes on more of the risk. In a defined benefit plan, the sponsor or employer takes on that risk. So it should be no surprise that public agencies, much more often than private companies today, choose the defined benefit plan as part of that risk-reward trade-off. They're effectively choosing stability for the employee. Historically, larger companies and more what I'll call traditional industries um, we're also more likely to have defined benefit plans for the same reason, but no Silicon Valley startup is going to have a defined benefit pension plan. I mean, they don't have the profile to offer that level of stability. So the key takeaway, I think, for our listeners is to remember a defined benefit plan shifts risk from the employee to the employer. And that's why public agencies and other defined benefit plan sponsors need to make sure they're going to have money in the future to pay those benefits that they've guaranteed to those retirees. That obligation to do so is what we refer to as pension liabilities. All right, well, let's define that term, too, because a lot of people have heard a lot of political chatter about public pensions and these things called pension liabilities, and particularly something called unfunded pension liabilities. So what is that all about, Mark? A pension liability, Seth, is simply the discounted present value. Remember that time value of money concept we talked about earlier. It's the discounted present value of all those anticipated retiree payments. It's what's needed today to completely fund a pension. Right. So the unfunded amount is the difference between that amount and the money that's already set aside in an investment account, let's say. That's right. We need to keep in mind, by the way, we're talking here on the one hand about money in an account someplace and on the other hand, a calculation of future obligations. Those calculations are based on a lot of assumptions about future earnings that the money will provide that's been invested, discount rates, employee retirements, how long employees live after they retire, all that kind of stuff. Those are historically have tended to drive those calculations to be pretty conservative. Yeah. And it reminds me about the fact that it's effectively a very precise calculation over a very imprecise process. I've used in other scenarios the what I call the football first down marker analogy, right, which is we have a very precise way to measure first downs in football. We have a chain that's exactly, you know, 10 yards. But the ref just eyes where to put the ball down. <laughs> so they use a very exact measurement over a very imprecise you know, process. And you know what? That's more generally true also of any kind of financial analysis. A guy I worked with many years ago, Bob Balterra, he and I came up with a theory which we named after ourselves. We called it the Balterra-Ulbert theory, and it was very simple. It was, if you allow us to build you a financial model that you want to use, we want to use to analyze a potential transaction, an acquisition or whatever, if you allow us to build a model that has at least 10 independent variables, we will be able to prove anything you like, and you will not be able to find any unreasonable assumption in it. That's how imprecise <laughs> the thing is fundamentally. 
There's a, there's an old expression that says if you torture the data, it'll confess to anything, right? <laughs> That's right. So let's go back to public sector pensions because there's a lot of heated rhetoric and politics around that topic. And and let's be clear, there are definitely problems and have been many problems with public pension systems. Just in our state, 10 years ago, the city of Stockton declared bankruptcy in part because of its fiscal mismanagement of its pension fund. But also, I think, is a lot of other scenarios where that rhetoric is often exaggerated rather to curry votes by, frankly, self-serving politicians. That's true, although we can't ignore the fact that there, there have been other real and potentially even bigger pension problems that have surfaced. One of those, for example, back in the late 1990s, California's public pension system, the money that's used to provide retiree benefits for cities, counties, school districts, etc., it got into a very precarious state because the public pension authorities allowed agencies to offer better pension benefits during the dot-com boom without requiring them to also set aside more money to fund those better benefits. So another example of our difficulty with measuring risk, right? An example of herd mentality specifically, because those pension managers clearly deluded themselves into thinking the world had fundamentally changed due to the rise of the internet and so much additional wealth would be created that they had no need to put aside more capital to invest. But as you might imagine, the numbers that they were working with or assuming didn't work out and things actually started going really bad really fast. So California, though, responded by mandating increases in employee contributions, pushing back when public employees could retire, reducing their benefits once they retired, all sorts of things like that to bring the system back into balance. But as I mentioned earlier, often the doom and gloom talk is overblown, right? I mean, politicians, I would say particularly conservative ones, right, still trumpet the impending disaster lurking in public sector pensions when it's not completely true. It will always, in some sense, it'll always be a risk. But as we've said in other podcasts, fear is a wonderful motivator of voters, particularly the fear of a risk that is admittedly difficult to quantify. It kind of reminds me of that line from the first Star Wars movie, fear will keep the local systems in line. Fear is a great way to get voters to vote for you. (laughs) That's right. Mark, I've heard you use the analogy of viewing a pension as the way we view a home mortgage, because we sort of understand the latter largely, right? A pension's unfunded liability is analogous to the unpaid balance on your mortgage. I mean, you do have to pay what you owe plus interest in the future, with admittedly knowing that it's a little more difficult in the case of the pension to come up with the appropriate discount rate because that's more variable than the interest rate, let's say, on most traditional mortgages. So there is a bit more uncertainty there. But I think the analogy is a really good place to start from because it illustrates a couple of important points about pensions. You know, with mortgages, you don't have to or even want to generally set aside all the money that you're going to use to repay them today. In fact, few people ever have enough cash on hand to pay off their mortgage all at once. They do that when they sell their house and move someplace else and buy a cheaper house or move into rental housing or whatever. And yet, even though they never have that cash on hand to pay off that liability, they don't generally wake up in a cold sweat about it. Instead, what they do is they go to their job and they earn their living and they pay the bill. In fact, the very purpose of mortgages is to allow homeowners to convert their future earnings potential into something tangible today, which is a home they couldn't otherwise buy just with cash, right? And so similarly, pensions allow communities to convert their future earnings potential into something tangible today, which is lower cash compensation costs for their employees today. But like your own earnings, it's a pretty good assumption that the public agency will keep collecting tax revenue in the future. 
That's right. And in fact, many community members often freak out about unfunded pension liabilities, particularly when that fear is stoked by politicians, when actually, in reality, they should be considered fairly normal. Now, granted, the amount of the unfunded liability does matter. That's why you have to do an analysis periodically to make sure that you still believe your future revenue growth as a city or a county or whatever is going to cover your future obligations. So then why, Mark, do public agencies make irrational decisions regarding pension obligations? Seth, that's a great question. I, I think there are a number of reasons. I mean, the ones that come to mind for me is, first off, uh, sad to say, most elected leaders tend not to actually understand finance all that well. Beyond that, they're also generally instinctively driven to be pretty conservative, or at least viewed as fiscally conservative. I mean, when was the last time you heard somebody run on a platform of, I'm going to spend money profligately? <laughs> I don't know if anybody has ever done that. There's also a fear of if they guess wrong and they depend too much on future earnings potential, there's a fear that they might have to cut services in the future or cut pension benefits or, God forbid, raise taxes, which is you know considered a major sin politically. And lastly, you know, there's, there's always the, the factor you have to keep in mind of most public agencies are pretty unionized, if not totally unionized. And unions tend to use pensions as a, as a leverage point in their negotiations. Interestingly, they tend to use it on both sides of the equation, both to get more benefits and also to make sure that the benefits that have previously been promised are going to be realized. All right, that makes sense. So let's like we always do, end with some takeaways and, and recommendations. I mean, I know the first should be that it's important to remember that risk isn't necessarily a negative. It's just a word for uncertainty, and that could be good or bad. And as we've said many times before, and I suspect we'll say many times again, humans are inherently pretty bad at assessing risks, so we all have to be extra careful whenever we're engaged in risk assessment. And let's remember our starting point. When we evaluate risks, we need to compare the likely outcomes of alternative future scenarios rather than comparing the possible outcome of one future scenario versus the present state. And we always need to remember that proposals that involve risk and reward don't just spring out of the blue. They come from people. And so we always have to assess the motivations of people, the politicians, the bankers, whoever, that are suggesting that we do or not do something. We always have to remember to ask, what's in it for them? What's in it for us? But don't go full paranoid because that's no fun. <laughs> well, my observation being on the board for eight years was that what we saw was a lot of people doing these sort of apples to oranges comparisons. And we really need to be wary of those, right? And one of those specifically is the fallacy of viewing public compensation, as we've just described, through a private compensation lens. And what I mean by that is that most of us, particularly those of us who are employed in the private sector, right, see this issue from our perspective. And we've already entered into implied risk-reward portfolio in our compensation. So then when we look at public sector employees and we see this quote-unquote guaranteed pension as something we don't have, which we don't want for our own money through taxes to pay for, you know, we get a little riled up. We also tend to neglect to remember the higher salaries we've received over the years by working in the private sector and other potential benefits like variable compensation, sales commissions, bonuses, stock options, all that kind of stuff. Instead, we tend to just focus on that less certain defined contribution retirement plan, comparing that to the more generous one that tends to be offered by public agencies with their defined benefit plans. 
But that difference was something that we chose to pursue and we decided to work in the private sector as opposed to working in the public sector. If the eventual outcomes of the risk-reward profile that we chose ends up being different from what we expected, well, it was really our choice to take that risk-reward profile in the private sector itself. The fact that somebody else chose a different one in the public sector and their reward may have been more certain but of a lower value, that's perfectly acceptable. But it doesn't mean that, that it's inappropriate for them to be receiving that benefit. Yeah, Mark, you and I have seen this a lot where people have looked at public employees and particularly senior public employees and right comparing one element of what they get, let's call it the pension plan, right? And not take into account the entire portfolio of their compensation package and that risk reward trade-off that we keep talking about. When you look at people um, whether it's the county council or a city manager or a superintendent of schools, all those types of folks probably can make a lot more money if actually they had worked in the private sector, certainly if you added up all the different elements of the compensation package they get. But they chose to take a job in the public sector. And besides the fact that may, they may be do, being doing it for a magnanimous reason, right, to be a public servant, but there's inherently a different set of trade-offs for that. And lower compensation in the cumulative sense, but including a more certain retirement. I think we could agree, though, Seth, that none of us are trying to suggest that we should merely accept whatever risks happen to be around in the public sector, particularly as, relate to, as it relates to public sector pensions. Really, what we need to do, and hope our listeners will do, is we need to take action to manage community risks, those kind of public risks, better. You know, for example, by reforming the public pension system, which is at least partially underway in California and, and could be done in other places. We also need to remember not to get sidetracked in the public sphere about focusing on one risk above all other risks when we try to manage risks. There are other societal problems to address, even other societal financial problems. Right. And life is full of risks, right? And risk doesn't just mean the likelihood of something bad happening, right? That's right. And I'm sorry to say, eliminating all risk is impossible, however much we might want to do that. But managing risk and living with risk is definitely something we can all, we can all do and always learn to do better. Well, Mark, this was a fun discussion, but fairly targeted, so a little quicker than our usual podcast, so hopefully still helpful to our listeners. You know, Seth, I'm glad we covered it because I think this theme of risk and balancing risk and reward is going to appear in lots of future topics that we're going to be discussing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks for the great discussion. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Hoping that your life is filled with rewards and risk, even if it's not fully funded, of course. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. We'll see you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.